Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hey there, guys. Welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true and maybe all two true stories. I'm Karina, one of your hosts for today. I'm Sam, another one of your co-hosts today. And I'm Steven. Yep. yep. We're back for the second episode of season two with even more stories with, from more incredible young CUNY student writers. Thank you for joining us for the second episode entitled Beneath the Surface. So let's get right into these stories. Our first piece is by an author named Natalie Giaccio. Fun fact, Natalie actually wrote this piece while we were studying abroad in Tanzania. But let me give you a little background on her. Natalie is a public administration major with aspirations to work for an international nonprofit that benefits developing countries. Born in Manhattan and raised on Long Island created a fear for her. The frightening idea, a life of normalcy. She much rather have an unpredictable future that involves a great amount of adventure and divergence. After 21 years of confused roaming, Natalie has realized that the thing that gives her the most pleasure is bringing joy to others who are less fortunate. Let's take a listen. And as I walked down the street, I heard the voice again, this time screaming in my ear, go to Africa. I was stopped in my tracks. I couldn't move. Mama Lynn has probably told this story over 200 times since starting her orphanage late in Africa 16 years ago. But she continues with vigor. So I yelled back to the voice, but not aloud because then people would think I was mental. All right, I'll go, but only if I could get a plane ticket there in the next 30 minutes. She wipes the tea off her pale upper lip with the tissue she stores in her pocket. Like every grandmother does, it seems. So then I turned to my right, and there it is, a travel agency. I went in, and the rest is history. I sit back in my chair, quietly stitching an unsymmetrical cloth heart. This heart, if I could finish it, will become a sachet made with her homegrown lavender. It will be sold as a fundraiser for the orphanage here in Tanzania that which serves as home to over 200 children with severe disabilities and or HIV AIDS. I stare at the lopsided craft in my hands, ashamed of how unworthy it is. Who would want to buy it? Why did I idiotically tell her I could sew? Little does she know that the only thing I have ever sewn are the same four pairs of shredded leggings I keep fixing over and over because I refuse to buy new ones. She continues on and on and on about God's role in her journey to Africa while I try and hide my awkward smile. This journey, she's explaining, began only from a voice shouting in her head that said, pack up and leave your life in England in order to help sick children in Tanzania? Hmm. So let me get this straight, Mama Lynn. You just heard a voice in your head and left everything? Your husband, your town, your children? to go to Africa, where you had nothing? 
this can't be true. <laughs> it just can't. The only voice I ever hear in my head tells me not to get the greasy fries on the side. And even when I do hear that voice, I still get the fries. It was a tough time, she continues discussing the days when the orphanage almost had to close its doors. I didn't know what else to do, so I fasted. I only ate a boiled egg a day for four months. I prayed to God that we would get donations. I become strategically absorbed in my sewing project. If I don't make eye contact with her, maybe she won't notice that my stitching is as questionable as my faith. As questionable as I feel some of these stories are. In and out, back and forth, over and under, I weave this bright green thread through the starched edges of the pearly heart pillow. Pungent hints of lavender shoot through my nose. Shit! Chunks of this dried plant are spilling from the unsewn section of the heart. I feel them in my lap, on my bare skin, exposed by the holes in my leggings. Her voice is loud. It's strong. Like her beliefs. God is good, she affirms. He's helped me to help these children. All this God talk reminds me of my mom, of my discomfort when she texts me paragraphs every day, those of which remind me I'm blessed by a higher power, a God who's helped me through a vicious breakup, a God who's helped me overcome getting drugged at a party. Hmm, where was God that night? The night the drugs were slipped into my red solo cup to begin with. When I kept sipping, not knowing I was consuming poison. Where was he when I was passed out in my own vomit on the side of the frat house? When I woke up the next morning and knew something wasn't right. Knew something was instead horribly, horribly wrong. Horribly ungodly. And where has God been for my mom? How can she say she has so much faith while she works 50 hours a week and gets paid close to nothing? How can she have all this faith when she prays for me, for us, and still bad things happen? When still, things don't get better. I've always believed that she had faith simply because nothing else was constant in her life. That the only thing that kept her sane was the trust she had in God. That that was the only reason she hung on. To keep herself positive. To keep me positive. Fine. But that doesn't make it real. Thank God, I think sarcastically as I realize I'm almost done creating this lopsided heart. Finally, one more stitch and I'm home free from this terrible art project. I stare down at the blatantly unsymmetrical heart sitting in front of me. Ugh, the ebony lace bordered with flowery ribbon is already falling off the smaller side. This looks horrible. I stitch the last thread and quickly throw it in the middle of the table so that Mama Lynn doesn't realize that I'm the culprit, I'm the creator, I'm the owner of this ugly heart. The ugliest heart at the table. The lopsided one. The one no one will ever want. The one that I should have tried harder on. I go to walk away to join the other volunteers outside who are painting or sanding or digging on other parts of the property. But just as I think I'm in the clear, I hear a gasp. <gasps> Whose heart is this? I freeze. Does she know it's mine? I'll deny it. But ugh. I can't. I can't risk someone else being framed for my mess. So 
I turn back around slowly and our eyes meet. It's mine, I admit softly. Well, isn't it beautiful? She exclaims, eyeing it and smiling, turning its lopsided edges over and over between her fingers. I watch, my heart in her hands, and I exhale as I realize her words carry absolutely no sarcasm whatsoever. How? How can she even like it? How can she think this heart is worth praise, worth having, worth holding even? How does she love it as is, like that? So imperfect. I'm silent and still until I manage to stutter back to her. Thank you, I say. <laughs> With no sarcasm, no doubt, no avoidance of eye contact. Thank you to Mama Lynn and to you too, Mom, for all that you've done, all that you've sacrificed, all that you've prayed for, and all that you've given to your children. Because surely, people like you both deserve all the peace that God has brought you. Oh, Natalie. Every time I hear this piece, regardless of whether we're sitting at a table, like a little banquet table in Tanzania <laughs> or in our studio, it always gets to me. And it's evolved so much from where it started. Thank you so much for sharing with us this evening. Thank you. Steven and I are looking at each other like <laughs> <laughs> trying to catch our, our palpitations it's, in our heart. <laughs> no, it, it's an amazing piece. I, thank you so much for sharing and being here tonight. Oh, you're welcome. So, Natalie, we have some questions for you. And um, in your piece, uh, you talk about um, your mother and Mama Lynn's, um, their, the positivity that they have um on their outlook on life. Um, but then you, on the other hand, seem to have this more, you know, glass half empty kind of look, <laughs> which I, you know, I, I also share. But um, has your point of view changed at all? Um, honestly, when I was writing this, I was like glass less full. <laughs> like, okay, okay. But I think so, especially since I read this piece at um, our performance, and my mother was sitting in the front row. Yeah. And um, a tear. I love Janet yeah, so yeah. much. <laughs> She's great. Uh, and when I, she read it before previously, but when I saw her tear up, I was like, aw. <laughs> like, it gives me more of an outlook that I'm more accepting of people that have this strong belief in, belief in God yeah. and, and faith or whatever people believe in, because if it gets them through it, then... I'm 100% behind it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's really important. When you when it, you first had this uh, piece presenting to us, um, I remember the voice. You, in the very beginning, you have this uh, this beautiful, I mean, like topic of this voice, this voice that talks to Mama Lynn, that tells her she can go, and then versus your voice, your voice that says, oh, uh, French fries, don't eat them, but you ignore it. Like, you don't trust your voice as much as she trusts hers, and she trusts, and whether that is, you know, just solely belief, or whether that's just your internal um, 
just you, whether that's you telling yourself that you can do it, that you can make it happen. Your glass half full, your glass. Yeah. I think your glass is full now. <laughs> I see it. Well said. That yeah. Was but yeah, I just thought that was, that was really interesting. You had this like this. Um, so on that note of uh, voice, voice being a big topic, voice being um, your sentiment or whether you or not you tie that with God or, or your unfaithfulness or your faithfulness. Um, to him versus just this overwhelming sense that I get that at this point in time when you wrote this piece, you believe that you don't deserve the same grace of God that's bestowed upon like Mama Lynn or your mom. And I just, I see that in that line where you start to talk about what happened to you that evening, um, that night that you went to the party. And even though you're, you know that you are special in a way that like good things do happen to you and that you are lucky to have God and, and have your mom have God. But at the same time, there's just this anger and this, this um, sort of you were abandoned. This this like you were left. And I just, yeah. I just think that it's so <laughs> I, I, important to ask this question to you <laughs> to find out what, what that meant to you as, as um, the writer and the author. Yeah. You know, I think that this piece this piece isn't this isn't about my belief as in God more of my my questioning on how people could believe in God because of all of the things that happened to me. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying poor me, just saying that if there was a God, I I'm not saying I don't believe in one. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying I don't have um the strong belief that Mama Lynn has or or my mother. Mhm. Mm it's just, I believe more so in kind of questioning what God would do for me after the fact this happens. Mm -hmm. And I think okay. that this whole piece is me being like, Mama Lynn prays for these kids every day. Yeah. My mom prays for more money and more things. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just don't. Like, I just, I just kind of get out there and I hope for the best and I, I push myself, but I could see how much better you you must feel having this God that pushes you, yeah. not just yourself. So I think that's this this piece comes in a, a, a roundabout way of me being like, I don't have that third party helping me, mm -hmm. but I can see how amazing it must feel to have this belief in God like Mama Lynn or my, my mother. Yeah, I yeah. can I can imagine. I've actually had the privilege of meeting both Natalie's mom and Mama Lynn, <laughs> um, and I can tell you that there's there's something very special when you get around people who um, just have this faith and this this hope and this higher being, this higher power. Whether it is you, that you are religious or that you're not, because I know a lot of us went over there um, with no necessary affiliation to that maybe we were spiritual maybe we you know believed in this that or the third but like we definitely left there with with more of a respect for it and um happier that the kids over there had that and that they had mama lynn yeah yeah 100 <laughs> percent. so for those of you not in the know a bunch of us life out louders went to tanzania this summer for a travel writing course so travel writing for those of you who don't know, is a form of creative nonfiction. And I'm not sure if this was your first time writing uh, creative nonfiction, Natalie, but if it was, what was it like writing this piece? Well, 
funny that you asked this because when I applied to the program, I was like, Africa, yeah, of course. Um, I want to go to that. Like, I don't care what class it is. F everything. And and then I found I was writing. I was like, wow, I, I, I've always wanted to write ever since I had these four multicolored notebooks when I was little, all different genres of what I would write. And a lot of it was Halloween stuff, which is, which is interesting. <laughs> How old like, were you? I used to do the same thing when I, I was like in first, second grade. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was maybe middle school. Oh, okay. Yeah, like never mind. Mind chemical romance, like writing, <laughs> <laughs> writing emo stuff, but um, I had, I had no idea what to expect when going into this, and ever since I wrote this, one of my first pieces, I've, I've written some semi professionally. Um, I've written dozens more pieces, like pieces, yeah. and and it feels so great. It feels very natural to write creative nonfiction. It's an amazing genre. And I, I agree. I, I, yeah, <laughs> Natalie, you're no longer getting graded on this. You don't have to. You don't <laughs> you have, have to, to butter this. anybody <laughs> up in here. No, I'm just kidding. Just it is amazing. I need those recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's a great way to express how you how you feel and mm. how you interpret interactions. I yeah. completely agree. And, you know, like writing these things, sometimes, you you know, you, you know what you what you want to say, but you get there and then you realize that you're no longer you weren't going the way you expected. You yeah. just it's, it's like it's just this journey writing yeah. these pieces sometimes yeah. and you end up somewhere completely different. And you realize that this moment in your life has meant something completely different than you thought originally until, you know, you sat down and you really thought about it. Yeah. That's I find beautiful, it yeah. super <laughs> therapeutic for me. Yeah. Like, um, I use writing, and, and I had never, I mean, I, I used to write, but, like, occasional thoughts doodling on the side of notes, <laughs> nothing extensive, yeah. until I took a CNF course, and I realized how beneficial it could be to, to allow me to grow yeah. as a person and to work through whatever problems I'm facing. And, and like you said, it takes you down a, ro a route that you never knew that you had a problem in this area, yeah. that this was like the root of it all, and, and yeah, lo yeah. and behold, it like is. Something just keeps coming back, and like, why, why do I keep mentioning yeah. this person or this <laughs> yeah. thing? And it was like, you know, there's something there. I just want to say one more thing about that. Yeah. I think with creative nonfiction, it's pretty much your life is a story. And mm -hmm. I, it's just life Agreed. is just so much more interesting yeah. when you take it in the perspective of creative nonfiction. I, I, yeah. I totally agree. Because before <laughs> this class, it was like I never thought of my life being that interesting. But I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> So even just to expand on that a little bit more, uh, yes, CNF is incredible for telling your own story, but I think that it goes a step further and it serves so much justice and by telling other people's stories too and by being mm -hmm. able to throw in, I mean, just looking at your piece alone, you give us so much background on Mama Lynn in such short lines, such short brief lines, and then you even tell us about your mother um, so quickly but so... In, in a way that I feel like I know her. I mean, given I do know Janet, but not like not not in that way, not as my mom. Um, and to hear about the the difficulties that she faces and why she relies on God so much, and even uh, your background and and I just think that I think it does so much. And and the quicker and the sooner people start to recognize that they can tell other people's stories through this genre. Um, I think that, that the world's going to be a, a better place for it. I agree. <laughs>
So, Natalie, thank you very much for being here. Yes. Thank you for having me. I feel like this was an awful pleasure. <laughs> an awful pleasure. <laughs> Our next piece is called How to Ruin Your 19th Birthday. And it's actually written by one of our very hosts, Samantha Jones. Yep, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) And now for your bio. Let's hear it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Samantha wants to live in a world filled with open creative thinkers, books that are bundled with espresso shots, and cures for her procrastination. A student at John Jay, she's completing her bachelor's in English with minors in writing and psychology. After taking a creative nonfiction class with Professor Madrazo, she found her passion to write the creative nonfiction genre. She plans to continue her work for the Life Out Loud podcast next year and attend graduate school for speech pathology to later help children with autism and hoping to one day open up her own art school for kids with disabilities and learning disability to help them overcome the daily challenges they face in school and the real world. When Samantha is not writing CNF or trying not to let her head explode from heavy workload, you can find her baking cakes for family, friends, and her dog, dancing and singing to Broadway music if no one is home, and looking up healthy recipes while eating the cakes she bakes and burritos. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a listen to Sam's piece. I actually do really do that. I do like eat burritos and look up healthy recipes. (laughs) It's horrible. Anyway. The name of this piece is How to Ruin Your 19th Birthday. Step one, bring the guest upstairs to your new dorm. Step two, make sure the security guards don't notice the amount of people sneaking into the building. Step three, raise the music. Step four, give everyone a red cup. Step five, give everyone a beer. Step six, make sure there are enough bottles for everyone to fall flat on their faces. Step seven, play card drinking games. Step eight, chug the king's cup. Step nine, lead your boyfriend into the bathroom. Step 10, please him. Oops, he ripped your stockings. Step 11, scream at whoever is knocking on the door interrupting your time. Step 12, drink to forget what you've just done. Not because you didn't want to or because it didn't go well. It did. But because you can't help but be incredibly shy about stuff like this. Step 13, play truth or dare. Step 14, kiss a girl. You liked it. Step 15, puke in the bathtub. Step 16, let your boyfriend take care of you. Step 17, smile when he tucks you into bed. Step 18, say yes to the friend who asks if he can stay over again because it's late and he has far to travel. Step 19, assure your boyfriend that it is fine. (laughs) Everything's fine when he looks concerned. Step 20, wave your drunken hand in the air as your boyfriend leaves to help other guests get home safe. Step 21, consider yourself lucky that you're already home. Drunk, too drunk. Step 22, try to close your eyes and get some sleep. But you are too sick. Step 23, sit up to keep the vomit down. Step 24, realize the friend you said could stay is creepily lurking over your bedside. He looks like a stranger. He wants to lie down next to you. Step 25, say no. Step 26, when he persists and goes under the covers, say no again. Say it louder. But he doesn't care for your opinion? Step 27, try to grab your covers as he pulls them off you. Step 28, keep pushing him away as he rips off your shirt. Step 29, 
Watch your pants leave your waist. Step 30. Begin to cry. Maybe he will feel sympathetic. Maybe he kisses your neck. His saliva sticks to your skin and feels as if sweat is dripping down. Step 31. Lie there like a dead weight. Step 32. Hold your breath as he smacks your cheek and tells you to stop crying. The sting vibrates through your left cheek, rippling there even after it's done. Step 33. Hold the tears in your throat. Step 34. Watch him take his pants off. You want to scream, but you... Step 35. Hold it back. Step 36. Feel the bed sink in as he climbs on telling you you are so beautiful. You want to hit him, but you keep your hands stiff to your side. His fat body lays on top of you. 300 pounds of pain and regret crushes your bones. There is a sharp pain in between your thighs, and you want to screech. The name of your boyfriend is at the tip of your tongue, but you know he won't hear you now. Step 37. Instead, question yourself. Why did you think it was okay for him to stay? Why is he doing this? He stayed over before. Why did he decide to do this tonight and not another night? Why did he trick you into thinking he was your friend? Why did your boyfriend leave? Why did you reassure him? Why did you even have the party to begin with? Why did you drink enough to leave your body paralyzed? Why don't you scream? Why don't you move? Why is this happening? Step 38. Close your eyes when he grabs your face to say, look at me when I'm fucking you. Step 39. Consider spitting into the eyes of the predator who waited to make you his prey. Step 40. Instead, hold back your anger. Step 41. Stare into his face. Step 42. Watch him take advantage of you. Step 43. Watch him watch you while he bites his fat lower lip. He's making a face of pleasure while he stares at you. He stares to show that he's still unsatisfied, shows his unquenchable thirst that which sucks away the goodness of your soul until he bites you. And then the pain is worse. And his eyes look even hungrier. You see your own in them, looking back. You see their pain, their fear. Step 43. Watch yourself in his eyes, lying there, not fighting because you, you don't have a chance. Wow, Samantha, thank you so much for sharing your story. Steven and I at one point looked at each other and just kind of couldn't believe that this was a how-to, that we just kind of looked and, and we were waiting, you know, for the title. You say it's ruin your ninth how did ruin your 19th birthday but we're standing here and we're just like this is this is so much more. more yeah <laughs> it, I'm, at, I'm at a I loss for words <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. thank you for sharing samantha this really was a, a very impactful piece yeah thank you thank you for having me here <laughs> You're so strong. I, I when we when Stephen and I and I mean even you when we decided to host this um, episode, I don't think that we were quite prepared for what we were signing up for. Not that at we all. would have so much raw truth and honesty mm -hmm. yep. and pain and strength and and empowerment 
because at the end of the day, this is this is what all of yeah. you ladies are coming on here and doing, yeah. and yeah. I can see it, it on it Steven's a, face. Yeah, <laughs> it, you know, it takes a it takes a it takes strength to come and you know uh, put put these things out there. You know, mm-hmm. things that people some people have taken to their graves, um, and you know, it takes real strength to come here and you know tell everyone, air this out to just you know let it be known. Um, and thank you, just amazing. Thank you. Thank you for all these compliments. <laughs> really owning your story, definitely. Um, I think your piece is the first that we've had um, where, in this particular style at least, that you know, it reads off as a list. Um, I, I mean, I've read many before, but it, it fits really well with this piece. Um, it, it's, you know, it builds, um, there's this like a certain innocence almost. It read, like it, I, when I read the list, like a lot of the pieces that are about a list, it almost kind of childlike and like there's an innocence to it and then um uh, yeah no I don't know it just fit really well I don't know yeah well I when I I this I wasn't planning to submit this story at all because um it's hard it's really hard yeah, to talk no, about and course. in order to write it like I had to like really 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 distance myself so I was like I'm gonna make it a list because like <laughs> that's like the most distance and put in the voice of innocence so this way yeah you know it was just it was just really hard to write so like in order to get it out, like I had to put it into the second person and really, 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 really distance myself because there was no other way. And I, and, and I also put it in the second person because I kind of wanted to also show people like this, this could, could happen yeah. to you. Like this could yeah, be this could happen to anyone. This could happen to anyone. Yeah. So I just really wanted to put other people in my shoes and kind of like get myself out of my shoes, <laughs> <laughs> sort of. In a way. I was no, just I gonna say uh, that that really did it for me. Um, yeah. We've listened to quite a few stories tonight that are strong we've had very powerful sad heartbreaking stories come on here um and and you know be read and uh, for some reason i got extremely emotional with yours and and i'm an emotional person but just to (laughs) sit there and to um hear you read off the list and for me to live every step of it it really um, not only gave me a sense of, of what you went through, but what anybody in this situation could have gone through. And you did a, a, a fantastic job yeah. doing Thank that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was amazing. Um, you know, like the, the dread, the, the disgust, like I felt it. My, my skin was crawling as you were reading. Um, and it was, it was just well done. Like how, how do you find the, you know, the, the strength to, or like, how did you motivate yourself to, you know, come back, bounce back from something like this? Like, do you ever bounce back from something like this? Because um, I, I, I mean, I think this story is, you know, like a way of uh, to achieve that. Maybe I don't know. Or something like that. Yeah. What are your okay. recipes to achieve? Yeah. yeah. So, I'm sorry. Wait, <laughs> yeah, yeah, repeat it. Wait, um, can I? I have a question too. Can I? Can I? Yeah. Inter- maybe this go ahead. Interject. Um, Samantha, as someone who. Uh, experienced this went through this uh, how did writing this piece allow you to own your story or, or release your you know traumatic experience okay um well <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, mean i'm better. just concerned because we have a lot of we have a lot of stories that are difficult to talk about we yeah. have a lot of stories that people you know would rather yeah. hold in and, and suppress and like for you having experienced this like this must have been extremely therapeutic yeah no definitely um well but I've written about it before. Like I've always find uh, writing in therapy, which is why I think writing it for for um, my creative nonfiction class, like it came a little 
little a little easier but it was definitely like more therapeutic mm-hmm. um it's really hard to bounce back some like, from something like that i remember like after it happened like i wouldn't eat or sleep for weeks i just couldn't stop thinking about it um and that's when i started like writing about it and that's i think that's what really got me into writing for the most part because when something traumatic like that happens to you it's 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 hard it's it's hard because like no one will like really understand what personally happened to you, which is why I'm so happy I wrote it. Cause like you guys are saying yeah. like it made your skin crawl. Like that's yeah. how I felt after. Like I just, it made my skin crawl thinking about it every day. Like mm-hmm. I just can't believe like that happened. And that I didn't realize like this can really happen to people until it happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I kind of want to like make other people realize that before it does happen to them or like just, just to make them realize like it does happen. Like, and really affects affects people's lives like I, w- I was in a horrible place then but like i'm really happy that i did take the time to write it out and it did help me like reflect on it and like make me a stronger person yeah yeah when when you submitted this piece were you afraid of any sort of backlash like victim blaming or anything like that um i have gone through victim blaming um and I, I, c- I see victims being blamed every day and it makes me actually really, which is why I kind of like wanted my name on the piece. Cause I'm kind of like, I'm not scared anymore. Like this did happen to me and it wasn't my fault. And every, like everyone can give the excuse. Oh, you, well, you were drunk. You shouldn't have been drunk. I'm like, well, no one should take advantage of you when you're drunk. Like that's exactly. just the bottom line. Yeah. And that's why I kind of like wanted my name on it because like, I, I really do fight for that. Like I see it every day in the news. Like what's his name? Got, the got out early. Yeah. For raping that girl, and they're like, "Oh well, she shouldn't have been drunk. She's probably at a party." I'm like, "But that doesn't—that has nothing to do with the fact of what he did. Like, he no. knew what he was doing, and he yeah. shouldn't have done it." And like, you know what's sad? The simple fact that you just said y- that guy who got raped, who got in trouble for raping that girl, that the fact that it's happened so many times, we can't even remember. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. there's so many names. Yeah. Like, I don't the even know one anymore. name that like really stands out to us. Yeah. It's just—it's—it's it's just it's happening a so lot. So many yeah. of them, mm-hmm. and it's—it's it's very, very, very unfair. And that's—and I think like. Uh, and then th- that's why like girls are like so scared to like go to report these things because they get tortured in court which is uh, why i like i didn't want to go because i've heard of it like i've heard yeah. of like girls being like tortured to face these guys in court and the victim blame and i just i was like going through all this already i'm f- i'm feeling horrible like i can't imagine feeling worse than this and i was just like i'm just not going through with it i mean i wish i did but uh it just i mm, the fact that like they get blamed for being raped is just I can't I can't I can't get over it and I which is why I really wanted my name on this piece because I I do really do stand up for that like mm. girls should not be blamed for being too drunk or being in the wrong place at the wrong time or dressing a certain way like it just shouldn't happen it just just it uh, I, it I makes I my skin yeah. crawl just thinking I about yeah. that yeah. so yeah. No, we thank you for for saying that, for being very adamant, especially in your piece where you say step, um, uh, I forget the step, but you're like, you know, step so-and-so, say no. And you do that repeatedly for various steps, Mm -hmm. continuously throughout your piece. You're you're being very adamant that regardless of you having been drunk, you said no. And that should have been enough. Yeah. And I think that, you know. The piece should have ended there. (laughs) 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 Exactly. (laughs) It really should have. Um. But no, I think that you really are doing a service by by saying, you know, sharing your stuff and, and being out there. And I'm really glad you wrote this piece for that. Um, 
for yourself, for others. And I love that awareness has been a common theme today mm-hmm. through yeah. this. So thank you, Sam. Thank you You're so welcome. much. Thank you. <laughs> You're phenomenal. We appreciate it. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs> So, so our last piece of the night is entitled Sound and Fury by an author that is choosing to be anonymous. Anonymous is an author who values cute baby goat videos on the internet and ice cream above everything else. Activist and adventurer, she spends her days defending controversial art and never sleeping unless it's necessary because there's too much in this world to experience. Anonymous refused to ever stop learning, hurting, loving, feeling, and making the most of this life experience as a form of rebellion against all who try to make it anything other than beautiful. Let's take a listen to Sound and Fury. My fourth grade teacher smiles so big, I wonder if her jaw will finally snap. Class! She shrills out in a piercing, failed singing career voice. Principal Green is here. Quickly, quickly, stand up and show him what you've been practicing. Every worry line and wrinkle in her middle-aged face is amplified when she smiles. Her frown lines strain themselves as her mouth attempts this maneuver it is not used to. Her black eyes open much too wide as she attempts to make this smile as convincing as possible, showcasing to our principal that of course she finds happiness in teaching children. Faint groans and eye rolls ripple through the class while Mrs. Red turns to boast to our principal about an untrue time frame, during which we supposedly learned the Shakespearean piece we were about to recite. Which one are we even doing? whispers Yellow, my classmate. Macbeth, I mutter without looking at him, just ready to get this over with. I know this and every piece of archaic literature Mrs. Red made us memorize by heart. Not by choice, however. I don't like the pieces. Too much tragedy and not enough fun. But they just stick somehow. A survival tactic, some may say, or maybe I'm just good at this. As I am told I am with most things when I received a recommendation letter prior to the age of seven to attend gifted and talented level classes. Mrs. Red's smile seems to turn back to us before she does, still strained and still exaggerated. Though the crevice in her face is crowded with yellowing teeth, it is the emptiest crescent I've ever seen. On three, everyone. One, two, three. A choir of sad fourth grade voices follows, reciting the famous soliloquy from the Shakespearean play. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. We finish. Mrs. Red claps loudly and enthusiastically while our principal claps slowly and surely beside her. With two thumbs up, he tells us to keep up the good work, explains to our teacher that he has a meeting to get to, and quickly excuses himself. As the rest of my classmates sit down eagerly, excited to be done, I take my time. After all, I know there's no point in sitting quickly. She's done with them, but not with me. She's never done with me. I always secretly believe that she could read my mind, so it does not surprise me when she follows through. Blue, step outside, Mrs. Red calls out from across the room. Her smile is on its way to fading, as though she's taking off a suit and heels after the end of a long day. Her attempts at being pleasant have exhausted her, I can see. There is one, and only one, quiet ooh, 
from the boy in the very back of our rows of plain desks. I guess the rest of my class is used to me being called outside the classroom by now. Like me, they are perhaps conditioned to believe that it's normal for a child to be taken outside to be lectured by an adult whenever they do something wrong. I just so happen to do something wrong every single day, multiple times a day. And though my classmates had never seen me do anything wrong, teacher knows best. I mean, who would go against a teacher? I walk outside the large, colorful elementary school classroom that overflows with motivational posters and worn books that smelled like old adventures had during silent reading time. I am in the hallway. When Mrs. Red spoke to me in the hallway, it was never right outside the classroom, like she did with the student that had missed too many homeworks in a row or perhaps had a family issue that needed attention. No, she spoke to me at the very end of the long hallway, right up against the back doors of the school, far from earshot of any classroom that might have had an open door, next to the single-stall bathroom that had been out of order for years. No one went inside. I was the exception. As I lean against the cold-tiled wall at the end of the hallway, in the back of the school, far from the motivational posters and the books, far from the Shakespearean speeches and the classmates who don't care how long I'd be out here as long as I came back before recess, I just think strategy. The only thing that matters in my nine-year-old mind is getting to go to chorus to rehearse the school play with my friends and our choir teacher, Mr. White. If I'm not good during this hallway conference, she won't let me go to chorus. The school's rendition of the Jungle Book, the musical, is coming up, and I've been cast as the esteemed narrator number three, which, worth noting, includes four whole lines to myself in a musical number with Mowgli and Baloo. I have to be able to go to chorus to rehearse, so I just have to keep my mouth shut. She comes into the hallway, and the look on her face eclipses my plans. Baloo... She says to herself, shaking her small head, the one with short, box-dyed red hair on it, the one that sits on her large body as she walks slowly towards me. <sighs> it's like you don't even try. I stare down at my worn-out sketchers until her brightly painted toes and black platform sandals come into view. Mrs. Red hates when I don't look at her when she speaks to me, but I stare at my sneakers, trying to put it off as long as possible. I soon feel a sharp nail pierce under my chin, lifting it up to meet her gaze. Did you even try to practice, she continues, or did you want to embarrass me in front of the principal? Is that it? Do you just hate me, Blue? No, Mrs. Red, I whisper, looking at her non-groomed eyebrows instead of into her black eyes. Oh, she exclaims, taking her nail out of my chin and throwing her arms up. Then you just didn't read the speech at all then. I saw you looking around at everyone else to see what the next line was. You didn't read Macbeth, and I know it. My cheeks redden with intense frustration at this accusation. I could fight, I think. I could recite it for her right now. Put on a goddamn one-person production of Macbeth right in this hallway. Make it a stage right here next to the single-stall out-of-order bathroom. I know the piece. Don't I? Of course I do. I try running through it in my head. She looks at me like she's caught me in some sort of lie. And suddenly I... I can't remember what comes after to the last syllable of recorded time. Wait, maybe I had just looked around at my classmates for the next line without even noticing it. I, I feel so small. Admit it, she commands, knowing she has me right where she wants me. To the last syllable of recorded time, to, to the last syllable, I, I'm frantically trying to remember, trying to comfort myself with my own knowledge. You don't know the piece, is the only sound I hear. Despite trying desperately to drown it out, my head is empty except for her sound. Against my every effort, my throat closes and my eyes begin to sting. 
But I know this. I know this. To the last syllable of work to time, to the last The immense stress I'm under must show because as I dangle from my final stride of composure, Mrs. Red cuts me down. She crouches down to my small stature and leans three inches from my face. How stupid can you be? Big, hot tears make their way down my small face. I hang my head in defeat. I'm the stupidest person in the world. I'm so frustrated with myself because she's right. I am so stupid. She's always right. A small sob leaves my mouth without my permission. And now you're crying. Tears won't get you out of everything, you know, she spits at me. We're done here. Go to the bathroom until you're ready to grow up and take some responsibility for doing what you're supposed to do. I walk to the single stall out of order bathroom, all too familiar with the route even through my tears. This is where my broken body comes when she is done with me. You'd think I'd be happy that this was the one place I could get away from her in school, but her presence always followed. That was when she herself didn't follow me in. I close the old squeaky door and let the weight of failure sink me down to the dirty floor. My mom wouldn't want me sitting here. The world is filthy, she'd say. Pulling my small knees to my chest, I give up on trying to remember the speech from Macbeth. I accept that I do not know it. I don't. Because Mrs. Red says I don't. I did not go to chorus that day. A week later, I'm warning my parents for the last time, as I've been doing for weeks leading up, that fourth grade is so hard and that I don't think I'm doing well. I always do well in school, and they've never had to deal with a teacher feeling any way but proud of me and my straight A's. But fourth grade with Mrs. Red is different. I fear the thought of explaining to them how. So I try to plant the seed of non-expectation to cushion the blow of disappointment that will come if they received a less than stellar report about their daughter from this teacher. You're doing fine, Blue, my dad assures me, adjusting the rearview mirror to find my little worried face. We look over your homework. We see how much you read and the effort you put into math. You can't possibly be doing badly. Your dad's right, my mom says. What can she possibly say? That you don't know enough college-level physics? She can say a lot of things, I think to myself. We pull up to the school and park. In one last attempt to keep my parents from meeting my teacher, I jump from the car and onto the pavement, hard, purposefully landing badly and falling so I can scrape up my knees. If I'm hurt, maybe they won't attend this meeting. And then Mrs. Red can't speak to them. She can't make them hate me. The fall hurts badly, but I look down eagerly through blurry eyes and hope to see blood. None. When we get to my classroom, Mrs. Red greets my parents with the same strained enthusiasm I know so well. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Blue, she shrills out. My stomach French braids itself to match my pigtails. She excitedly invites my parents in, cheerfully noting that kids aren't allowed into parent-teacher conferences. I squeeze both my parents' hands before they leave me, alone in the hallway. Standing as close to the doorframe as possible, I can't afford to miss a word. Everyone introduces themselves. Then I hear Mrs. Red hand my parents my report card. As she begins to describe how I'm doing, I hold my breath. I listen in horror and confusion as she tells them I'm her best student. As she tells them that I read at a 12th grade reading level. As she tells them that I'm a fast learner who always strives to do her best. As she tells them I'm always looking to help other students and that I'm a natural leader. As she describes a situation where I taught a classmate how to play chess. I start to shake because that 
That never happened. I don't know chess, and I've never let anything in my life. I take forever to learn. The only thing that's true is my reading level. Why was she lying about my achievements? My parents could never rescue me if they never knew I was in trouble. I would learn later on in life that this is a common tactic. Compliment their victims in front of others to make it seem like they're anything other than what they are. And that's what she did. She played the role of proud, supportive teacher so that it would never be possible to believe that she was anything less than that. Anything ugly. Now they're all laughing about something I haven't heard when she escorts them to the door. Hello, Blue! Her voice rips a hole through my thoughts before I throw up Chinese food onto the floor. Weeks later, my friends and I are doodling pictures to each other in our journals instead of reading the old public school copies of The Giver in front of us. My classmate has just handed me a drawing of a stick figure princess with a name tag that, not surprisingly, reads her name, Purple. I jokingly sketched the stick figure's head even bigger, pretending I didn't actually want to curl up in the corner with one of the tattered copies of the book on the table. Mrs. Red hasn't pulled me out of class once today. In the six months we've been in school, this has never happened. And as the hours I count on my fingers before recess shrink, my hope grows larger. Hope is a mistake. Blue, step outside for a minute, her voice commands. My friends look up at me as I get up. Young and innocent eyes fill with eagerness, hoping I'll fill them in quickly on what I've done wrong. I shrug, showing I don't know. I'll make something up about what this hallway conference is about later, when they demand juicy details from the girl who's always in trouble. I guess they looked up to me in a way. Such balls I must have to always be pissing off the teacher. Aren't you scared, Blue? What if she calls your parents? What if she sends you to the principal? Stop pissing her off. I adjust my plastic headband and my frizzy hair to distract myself from the crowd of eyes that seem to follow me as I leave the table. I walk to my usual spot, at the end of the hallway, against the wall, right next to the single-stalled out-of-order bathroom. I wait there for what seems like an hour. I start running through the fun choreography the chorus and I had learned for the Jungle Book the Musical in my head, even trying to do that kickball change that Mr. White, our choir director, had taught us. Tripping over my sketches in the hallway, I definitely don't have it down. Yet! I think to myself. Soon I've gone through the entire play, and Mrs. Red still hasn't come. Despite my mother's warning never to sit on floors, public floors especially, I do. The world is filthy, she would warn. She must have sensed it, because the second I look down, she's here. I feel her. I don't have to look back up to know. I stand immediately, and sure enough, she is walking towards me. The look on her face makes me want to run. Run far from this place. Run far from the end of the hallway. Run far from the single-stalled, out-of-order bathroom. Run from Mrs. Red. She's right in front of me now. I do not look up from my sketches until she says my name, and then instructs me, lift up your arms and smell yourself. I'm confused. Why is she asking me to, to smell myself? I do it anyway, smelling under my arms like I've only seen people do in cartoons. I feel uncomfortable. I'm nine years old and smell nothing but dove soap. Do you smell that? She asks with a mildly disgusted look on her face as she looks down at me like I am a hare in her food. I don't say anything. Just look up at my teacher in confusion. I'm bringing this to your attention for your own good. You smell horrible. You should be showering more. Don't feel badly, though. People of your ethnicity always smell. My world stops. I smell bad? No, but 
I don't smell. I shower every single day. What did she mean, people of my ethnicity? I think back to my table of friends, to Purple from Columbia doodling princesses. She certainly doesn't smell. I think about my best friend Pink, who is most likely shaping a ball of Play-Doh she keeps in her left jeans pocket right now, and whose parents come from the exact same region in Guatemala as I am. Pink always smells like Garnier Frutis. My ethnicity does not smell. Does it? I sniff under my arms again, urgently. Still nothing but Dove soap. I don't smell bad. Do I? What if I'm just too used to myself? Too familiar with my own scent to pick up on it. But I shower every day. Don't people who smell not shower every day? If I smell, do, do my friends think I smell? Is that why my classmate Indigo doesn't think I'm cute? Do I just smell without knowing it? How long have I smelled? Mrs. Red interrupts my racing thoughts with the words that are forever etched into my being. I can't go another day smelling you. You need to wash yourself. You need to go inside the bathroom, take your shirt off, and wash under your arms using a wet paper towel with soap. I feel my throat close from embarrassment at the realization that my teacher is instructing me to wash myself here, in school, in the single-stalled, out-of-order bathroom. But I do not question it. Who would question the teacher? I mean, I must smell, don't I? I do, because she told me I do, and she is always right. And so I turn to walk slowly towards the single stall out of order bathroom and do not question her command until I realize she's following me in. I look at her with wide eyes as if to say, what are you doing? Please don't. But Mrs. Red silently insists she has to see if I'm washing correctly. My mom also always warned me to never go into the bathroom with anyone but her or my father. The world is filthy, she would warn. As I walk slowly into that single-stalled, out-of-order bathroom, I feel the evidence of the world's filth walk too closely behind me. She shuts the door and locks it. I face the sink in the dark beige room and look down at the lightly resting faucet, knowing her reflection is in the mirror and refusing to look at it. Take your shirt off, commands Metra in a quiet voice. I shake my head no. Do you want to keep stinking up my classroom, she asks. I slowly shake my head no to that, too. Then lift your arms up. I do as she commands. She takes the hem of my white button-up shirt and begins to lift it. I feel her fingers graze the sides of my small torso, and I pray to disappear. I want to be gone. I want to be anywhere but standing in front of the sink in a white training bra. Thank God I remembered to wear it for once. Blue. I automatically look up at the sound of my name and see my reflection in the mirror, terrified and ashamed to be so naked, and then hers. Her face is almost amused. Her gaze is fixated on my small body in the mirror, not my face, I note. I shiver. Take a paper towel, wet it, put soap on it, and wash under your arms. I move to take the brown, sandpaper-like paper towel from the dispenser and notice my hand is shaking. It shakes as I turn the faucet on and let the water stain the paper towel dark. It shakes as I pump soap from the soap dispenser onto the paper towel. And I do not question why there is soap in an out-of-order bathroom. I later see the packaging for the soap in the trash can by her desk. I look into my reflection and realize I'm crying. I cry as I lift my arms and rub underneath it with the cold, wet paper towel. I cry as the dripping water darkens my fabric training bra until the left side is almost completely soaked. 
I cry as I wash under the right arm now, and I cry as she watches. I do not go to chorus that day. Mrs. Red died March 29th, 2013, from a heart attack. I was almost 17 and had not thought about her in years. I had completely pushed fourth grade out of my memory, yet I remember feeling happy at the news. She had suffered and was dead, and I was elated. That happiness shocked me. But as the memories came back to me of Mrs. Red, the hallway, the single-stall out-of-order bathroom, and instances like the wet paper towels and other situations of abuse by her, I realized for the first time that they were not deserved, that I did know Macbeth by heart, that I still do, and that I did not smell. It was never me that was the problem. It was her, the personification of sound and fury. And yet, as I sat at my dining room table for my birthday party that year and listened to my friends talk about their fond memories of her, how she changed their lives by getting them to love learning, how she was so kind, understanding, and almost motherlike in nature, I couldn't help but wonder, still, a little, if maybe I really was somehow the problem. Maybe it really was all my fault. That is the power of an abuser. Mm. My dear, that story is so heartbreaking and moving. And I can't thank you enough for being on our show today and discussing this, sharing this piece with us. You are definitely so very strong and um, myself and, and Sam and Steven, we were all moved to tears while listening to that. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to bring it to you guys. So if you're ready, sure. we're going to move on to these questions <laughs> that we have. Um, I'm sure everyone over here is uh, trying to collect themselves <laughs> and uh, get, uh, get feel, the ball rolling. Feels. Feeling the feels. Exactly. So my first question for you is the voice of innocence in your piece. There's no denying it. It's there. It mm -hmm. exists. But you also have this great combination of the voice of experience weaving in and through constantly from beginning to end. I think that not only does this give us a really great view on how you were feeling during both events before and after, but did, did you always intentionally plan on having both experiences? I mean, would you just work on your, or like, would you just explain, walk us through that, that process? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was kind of, I'd love to say it was on purpose, but it was completely an accident because I originally really wanted it to be from the viewpoint of someone of the age that I was at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but it just, <laughs> it just didn't work out that way because a lot of it was that this is difficult to write about. Yeah. Um, it's hard to put myself back in that spot because <laughs> it was obviously a very you know difficult time. So writing from this perspective was a lot and just like mixing in the innocence that I of course wanted as much as possible was just something that kind of just like happened naturally. 
because I just couldn't do <laughs> it's it's literally from me being inadequate. Um it, it sounds oh, no. it's, it sounds no no, no 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 it sounds really harsh but it worked. And mm-hmm. I feel like I always kind of felt that it would work. Um so I just kind of kept it instead of I couldn't easily like go back and you know make it hardcore innocent <laughs> as in paradoxical as it sounds. But I could edit it to make it otherwise but it just wouldn't I like the feel of how it is now. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what makes it like really unique cuz like I've always seen like stories like either in the voice of innocence mm. or in the voice of um experience and I just love like cuz when I was reading I was like, "Oh, this is like oh, this is um this is in a child's point of view," but then like as I kept reading, I was like, "No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Like it's both." And like that's really cool to see like how you were feeling then plus how you were feeling like mm-hmm. later on like looking at it. It's, yeah. it's really cool. It's really Thank unique. I noticed it. <laughs> I don't think that I I would be as strong of a person to be able to do that to to weave back and forth through child me and adult me um, because I think I'd be getting too upset or too emotional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that you did a really great job of keeping a balance even while reading your story here in in, mm-hmm. in the in the studio. Which guys, all <laughs> of you listening, it was done very well. I must <laughs> say. So, you know what really got me is at the end, you mentioned your feelings towards the death of Miss Red, and you say, my happiness shocked me. I, I love this line it. because um, as an audience, we feel the same, and I'm unsure if this is like a, hor- a horrible thing to feel like ha- happy and almost relief that she is dead. Did you feel bad about feeling happy? And should the audience feel horrible for feeling happy about another human's death? That's <laughs> interesting because immediately my mind goes to like psychology and like, uh, things like the death penalty like should we have the death penalty if it's for bad people but it's death like you're killing someone like we as a human if we start devaluing human life that that's going to be like that's the end of us you know what i mean mm-hmm. we can't like think like that but at the same time having personally gone through it and that's something i think we need to fi- factor in as well having personally gone through it i'm glad she's dead like i'm glad that she died in such a horrible way and i did of course feel bad for that because you know the rest of the world is always going to make me feel bad for that um but yeah i i just think there's just it's difficult it's really difficult for me to express but personally from what i went through even so much more than the story that i told there were so many other instances like that i could have talked about and i just can't bring myself to feel bad for being happy about it Mm. and that's inhumane of me and that's horrible but i just like can't um i don't think that that's inhumane of you by any means i don't think that that makes you any less of a person i just think that it definitely deviates from the societal norm of us being like oh someone died let's sit here and glorify them i mean Mm. i i'm we've sat with other people who've talked about death on this um podcast and we've we've heard them say you know i'm not going to glorify someone um's death i'm not going to put them on a pedestal that they didn't belong which is something that we always tend to do um so I think that it's interesting that like you're so uh, open and blunt and straightforward to the point in this piece that you just go ahead and say, you know what, like sometimes we we say, you know, we're sorry this person died, mm-hmm. but here you're just you have absolutely no sympathy. You're just like mm-hmm. you were a bad person, like and good I- for you. And I feel like as an audience, like we like seeing your abuse, like we don't blame you for like not being sorry about her death like not i'm kind of like i've like kind of like feel fam. the relief with you i'm kind of like yeah. a yeah. whole 
like weight just like kind of like yeah. lifted off you, my you, shoulders. You, you know? really, um, you really, you really made her a villain, and um, mm -hmm. it it was very easy to you know immediately not like this woman, and um, and we could definitely feel. I feel as the audience could definitely feel for you, um, and. You know, we I, I don't I'm not I didn't mourn her loss. I'm glad I'm with you there. I'm glad she's gone. Um, <laughs> that she's gone. Yeah, it it was also interesting to kind of see that glorification because it, it wasn't. I was definitely the only person, at least in my class. God forbid this happened to any other child after me or before me, but I was definitely the only one in my class that went through this extent of abuse. But it wasn't like she was so super nice to everyone else, you know? It's not like everyone else like loved her at the time or anything like that. Like everyone kind of felt that she was mean person, you know what I mean? But when she died, you know, at my birthday party, they were all like, oh, she was amazing. I loved, I still remember that Shakespearean play and it was like, so amazing <laughs> like i'm i'm obviously like exaggerating a bit but right. there is that with I, people i, mm -hmm. I think well, yeah especially when people look to the past especially when they're a lot younger you know the mm -hmm. the rose tinted glasses come out yeah. and yeah. you know nostalgia and all that but um you know some people are, are kind it's of shitty sure. it's like that moment where you think about high schools and <laughs> you hated everything up until your last day senior year and you're like oh but it was yes. so wonderful <laughs> <laughs> that's what people do exactly. with that regularly you're oh like, my god you're in college and you're just like oh i, yeah. I miss high school yeah. I, yeah. and you're in high school like yeah. god i can't sure. wait to no, get the hell Pretty yeah. sure if you were there, you would hate it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah. I guess I guess what we're all trying to say for this particular point in your piece, uh, again, we've told you that we admire that you even spoke out and decided to write this piece. And I'm sure that it was very difficult for you. But just to be to make it okay for other people to be okay with this. Mm -hmm. That's I think that's the biggest point that you that you highlight and that you allow you you literally gave your stamp of approval for mm -hmm. people to be okay that someone dies and not feel bad about yeah. it and not want to you know build a statue and put one up in their name yes thank you and i i feel like that's something that we do a lot for teachers you know we hold teachers and when a teacher is good they're incredible but we hold that title so like highly that you would never think that a teacher and also a female could do something like it, this it's almost mm -hmm. sacred in a, yes. in a sense mm -hmm. that absolutely and you know we ha we value these people um to you know to the utmost and we never expect them to you know betray us mm -hmm. um in in that way mm -hmm. ever um and like you said especially a woman um but yeah yeah, yeah. We go ahead sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we can we never see where it could go wrong you see a female teacher with a female student and you see them go out into the hallway and you just think, oh, she's just a little bit rambunctious. And she's out there for an hour, like over an hour. And you just, it, it's not to say like, how did no one think of this? How did no one save it? But it's that blindness that we just wouldn't ever think that something like this could be happening or any yeah. of the other instances that like happened to me because it's it it's yeah it's it, just it's, it's just, just it's a furthest you don't thing. Touch that it's the furthest yeah. thing from our you know from our mind mm -hmm. yeah it's just like yeah but i i feel like that's that's such a 
like a 1950s like gender like no for sure like totally. summation of like happen. females are okay and yeah. i think that that's also another topic that is really important in this piece that you sit there and you say no listen like mm -hmm. it's not just one specific model of what the bad guy looks like the bad guy can look like anything yeah. it can mm -hmm. take any shape any form and in this instance it was this teacher in this instance i was the victim mm -hmm. and it's I think that it's really eye-opening and I think that it's really important that we talk about these kinds of issues because mm -hmm. when we turn on the media and when we turn on our Facebooks and when we mm -hmm. read our news posts and we see everything, it's it's always the typical guy mm -hmm. on male, on female guy, mm -hmm. um, you know, teacher did this or yeah. um, we always see the male on female, female, male. You never see a combination like female, female and it just mm -hmm. goes to prove that anybody can do this yeah. on that note what do you want the listeners to take away from this piece i think i think i do want people i think i want awareness you know what i mean of everything you know i i just want awareness not necessarily people to look at the world and think it could be anyone it could be her and just to live in fear but just be aware that the way that you think is so important and the prejudices that you hold are so important and like the stereotypes that we have are so important mm -hmm. and it's everyone's responsibility to get rid of them by themselves you know what i mean like to have a more open mind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely like and this goes for like everything you know what <laughs> yeah. i mean but yeah. specifically something like this like it did not have to get to this kind of level and if we make it so that we can just and i also shouldn't have you know been so quiet for so long but i was never in an environment where i felt like it was safe so just just to create that for people i think just to have that in the back of your mind is just mm -hmm. something that i really think is important and then i want people to like take my story and have it put it in their pocket yes <laughs> take a falling star and put it in your pocket <laughs> i think that i think that everything that you said is absolutely true and i can't thank you enough for bringing this story to our intention our attention and finally <laughs> even more so speaking out and finally telling it for you because holding it in must have been really hard so thank you my dear for being here of course thank, thank you. you thanks guys <laughs> That concludes our second episode of the season, Beneath the Surface. We are also excited to bring you new stories this coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds that don't normally get heard in the creative nonfiction genre. We'd like to say thank you to everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, basically everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. But most importantly, we have to thank you, our audience. We hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in, and we'll see you soon, and good night. Mm -hmm.